What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, folks? Today, we're joined by Alexandra Lomachenka, marketing technology consultant and nonprofit founder. Born in Belarus, Alexandra got her start in gaming and SaaS startups in product marketing roles. In 2017, she became head of marketing at Splitmetrics, a team of experts building the future of mobile marketing tools. She then moved to the UK to lead a product marketing team at Skyscanner, the popular flight comparison site where she focused on app growth and MarTech. In 2021, she joined Debop as marketing technology lead, where she owned compliance management, multi-touch attribution, and much more. And since then, she's partnered with various companies as marketing technology and growth advisor, including the popular female health app, Flow. In April of last year, Alexandra co-founded Laleka Art, an online nonprofit marketplace that allows you to buy artwork made by children from Ukraine, built on top of a custom money transfer system. And today, she scaled Laleka to a team of 30 plus volunteers, 5k plus sellers, 15k plus works of art helping children and their families make over 30k. Alexandra, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And the intro, it sounds incredible. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's super cool what you're uh, doing with Lilica and I definitely want to give you a chance to to get in uh, to that at the, at the end of the show maybe and talk about uh, some of the journey. Uh, we've been super deep on AI and, and CTP and and I hope the listeners are, are enjoying this as, as much as I am. I just like uh, love nerding out uh, talking about data and, and AI and I feel like I, I've been a, a follower of, of yours on, on LinkedIn for a while now and have definitely gotten value out of your your LinkedIn posts. So maybe we can uh, start with AI a little bit here. We've, we've definitely been down the rabbit hole we did a kind of a four-part series on AI uh, covering a bunch of different topics, but I feel like the one that everyone uh, keeps going back to is this idea of like how fast could AI change or replace marketing jobs. And I'd love to just get your take on what you think are the challenges that AI has to replace everything a marketer does today. I actually think that the biggest challenge that AI has is uh, the speed at which we are, as human beings, we are able to absorb and adopt new concepts. And there is just an absolutely beautiful example from a completely different time, from a completely different part of the world. And I'm based in Scotland right now, you're in Canada. <laughs> and the, the example is actually from Japan. And uh, it was the post-war period. And you can imagine Japan after the Second World War in um, early 50s. And the country is ruined and there's lots of devastating memories there. And uh, the occupation has just ended. So the people of Japan, they are ready to rebuild their country. And they value life right now more than anything. And they want to manifest it through all the means they possibly can. And there is a group of young architects and they just, they refuse to use architecture just as a tool. They want to use architecture to manifest like that they value life, that, you know, they want to manifest this idea of regeneration. And they start thinking about the architecture as about a living organism. So they think about the architecture as something that they would imagine it, buildings would have a spine and after that there would be modular capsules that would be attached to this building 
And if you, you know, your family is out, has outgrown the capsule, you would buy, you would get another one. Or if it is worn out, you would do the same. And they were dreaming about the space cities and the floating cities and some landscape integrated houses. And it definitely was considered like the future, like that's exactly how it's going to look like. Uh, and it was 70 years ago, early 50s. Then in 70s, uh, there was uh, an architect and uh, Kisho Kurokawa, and he built a capsule tower in Tokyo. And it was also like absolutely incredible. You know, it had the spine and after that 100 capsules that would be attached to it <laughs> and uh, it was actually built and once again it was considered like oh my god like this is the future and it's ironic that right now it's actually faces demolition and these capsules mm. they're not used for living they're used for storage by people so some and and this old movement that it is known as uh, japanese metabolism and yes, maybe it doesn't exist as it was envisioned back then. But right now we have this concept of, you know, modular buildings, highly modular buildings. We have these beautiful houses integrated in the landscape. And also I was thinking about, you know, the whole concept of, I don't know, like Pandora or Tesla or the full concept of the App Store. It actually has, you know, the same in their nature. Having mm. something foundational and then small elements attached to it, it seems to me like this is similar to AI and it fascinates me how bold ideas of the past, how they were able to shape the future. So when I think about how AI, like how it will progress and how it will shape us, I, I actually think that it will happen organically. So it won't be some sort of a disruption and revolution, but it will be a very organic and natural evolution that in 20 years from now or 50 years from now, it would feel like as natural as us ha having modular houses. Yeah. Very cool. I thought you were uh, going in, in a different take there. I thought you were going to say that AI in uh, in in like 50 years from now is going to be used for, for storage purposes, but I, I love the analogy that you finished with there. Yeah. You never know how it will turn out. Yeah. There's there's some cool some cool takeaways there for 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 especially like early stage marketers, right? Like I think that a lot of the folks that are really worried about jobs kind of disappearing, uh, are especially the ones that are in school right now or are searching for a job right now and are kind of staying up at night because like I myself have chatted with hiring managers that have closed down uh, entry level roles because they're just like offloading that to Chat GPT for like a first draft of an email or first draft of a blog post. They're not publishing GPT stuff, but they're like taking that and then like uh, making it better or fine tuning it. And that's usually stuff that they would have given to an intern there. But I feel like from your analogy, it's less of this going to be this like shock factor where like overnight there's going to be a disappearance of like 50% of entry level jobs organically there's going to be change but it might not necessarily disappear from like a, like the landscape of jobs it might like turn into something a bit differently and we're going to look back on it and it's going to feel less of like a drastic doom type of change and, and people are just going to think that like yeah like uh, we're seeing this happen and like we just kind of like adapted to it yep 100 percent. and actually you know it's an interesting angle about um you know earlier roles 
And when you're just entering the market, when you're very early in your age and uh, with your knowledge and career, and you know, when I, when I think about it, I actually, so we don't have answers, uh, which roles will be valuable, uh, maybe in future, it feels like crystal ball thing here, but at the same time, mm -hmm. um, you know, I believe some edges that a professional can have, they are, um, that keep this professional valuable right now or 10 years from now. And they are very clear. So I would say that, um, just to name these angles, the first one I think about is the difference between different, uh, between industries and between specialists and between, um, you know, between different uh, people of different profession, it just beca uh, becomes very blurry. Right now, it is very hard to find a professional that would have just one expertise. It would be engineering and marketing. It would be medical and business. Mm -hmm. It would be, um, it would be construction and finance. It will be always um, on the edge. Uh, it will be in between different industries, if I can say. And maybe this is something that young folks need to aim for as well: is how to to make sure that they are in between different worlds, and maybe the actual inside it can be happening in between different worlds when they when they start clashing between uh between each other. Another thing that I'm thinking that uh, is important is the expertise, the deep expertise of a person. And this is something I'd wish um, I was told earlier in my career, because when I was young and I was, I tried to become a generalist, I was so curious and so interested in many directions and factors. Like I would learn a little bit of marketing, a little bit of finance, a little bit of engineering, a little bit of product. And I actually see so many people who did the same and they were struggling with finding their right place in the, uh, mm -hmm. in the tech world. I would say, you know, if you're early in your career, maybe you would want to start with growing your expertise in one, two fields and after that acquiring additional expertise and maybe not on as much deep level, but at the same time, like it will give you the broad perspective. And once you're ready to collaborate with other teams, that's when you would want to acquire additional knowledge from, uh, from folks in engineering, product, finance, etc. So I would say like this gradual uh, grows from expertise to broad uh, understanding from to expertise again to broad understanding again. I think that's uh, what can maybe if not help, but facilitate uh, um, young folks finding uh, their first, maybe not first, early roles. Then um, maybe there there could be another angle again, like it's connected to this uh, the idea of uh, generalists. And maybe if we think about the models, the language models, the ChatGPT thing, I I find it fascinating. It's generalistic by design, and it's basically, you cannot find the expertise there because it takes the, it takes like very broad uh, and surface information from many mm -hmm. sources and it's made, it generalizes them 
generalizes it even more. So I wouldn't be that afraid if you were at the point of your career where you know your stuff when you can say that you are an expert to your stuff. Um, it, it would be really hard for the language model to uh, compete with you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great advice. So you said three things there. You your first point was this idea that like the value of like in between industries, like having expertise and not just one industry, but also maybe like another one or or a third one. And then your second point was like being less of a generalist that's like a bit shallow but has like expertise or like an understanding across a broad subset of industries and instead has like a deep like it made me think of like the T-shaped marketing approach to to your career, where you have like the the broad uh, top understanding of like the the core channels and concepts of marketing, but you pick like one or two areas, like content or marketing automation or data, as kind of like this is your jam. This is what you're going to specialize into. And then uh, your third one was really uh, kind of encompassing that a little bit and saying that like most of the large language learning models right now are like based on this like generic way of averaging out a lot of information that that is out there. And you're never going to get answers from like the top 1% of people when you're asking that question. So I feel like my takeaway from that would just be like, um, pick one or two kind of areas of of specialty early on in your career. And uh, I think that comes with just like joining a startup, maybe like I know you were part of startups early on in your career, and it allowed you to get a taste of the different roles, like you were part of like data teams and product teams, and you got a broad different taste of stuff before you decided what to, to specialize in. Um, but yeah, I, I love that, that, that advice there. I think that, um, it's kind of like true, uh, regardless of, of AI, I think that like folks like should follow that advice, but in, in this like wave of AI, it's even more powerful because yeah, like even if one day AI is able to completely replace one of the two industries that you, you decide to specialize into early in your career, you still have that other one in your back pocket and you're still like at an advantage because you still have that like intersection of that other specialty that maybe uh chat GPT or, or the AI tool doesn't have. So yeah, I think that's great advice. Thanks. And also, you know, if we think about the insight in general, like what is insight? And uh, um, I'm just wondering how much of really insightful information is published in uh, access and can be accessed by language Mm -hmm. models. I wouldn't say much. I would say that most of the information, it's, you know, it's still stored in personal knowledge bases, just in brains. And for this reason, it is... You know, the process of constantly getting new data points, uh, new insights, collecting them, finding patterns in what you see, really understanding, like, you know, when you change the job, what is the what are the problems that you're going to see there that you have already seen 10 times? Um, mm. So I find this powerful. Yeah, I think like the data that these like not just ChatGPT but like any uh, large language model has access to is really like the value of of the output and like the the quality of the output. And I think that like one of the concepts that comes into play here. And I'm next week I'm chatting with the 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 grandfather of Martech, Scott Brinker. It's something that he's brought up many times. Is this uh, recently this idea of composability uh, is like combined with AI. And basically how you can not just use uh, GPT's language model to like ask it questions, but like pair that chat UI with 
like proprietary data or like subject matter data, data that you own or like, um, like top 1% type of like articles that your team has written. So like to get the brand tone or like pair that with your data warehouse and ask questions. So like, I think that opens up a whole new world of instead of just like asking questions and getting this like generic averaged out answer from the masses, you get to like, pair that same type of artificial intelligence with data that you care about that is a lot more relevant and potentially much higher quality too. But I think that like the only way to do that, um, like you require obviously on your team, like a sophisticated level of, of type of engineer on the team. And I, um, I think this is a cool transition to one of my favorite uh, LinkedIn posts that, that you wrote around this idea of like um, business oriented machine learning uh, slash uh, data product managers. You argued on LinkedIn that um, they should be added to MarTech teams. Um, you mentioned that this uh, was one of your favorite posts when I when I reached out to you because uh, like you can't really figure out this insight without like being in the weeds and, and having experienced it. So my question related to that post is like, what unique traits and skills do um, these like business oriented machine learning data product managers bring to a marketing uh, a marketing technology team uh, that might not be found in in, in that current team today? Well, I was incredibly lucky to work with some of these individuals, uh, these um, ML data product managers who are very passionate about growth and marketing, and they're just, they're so powerful innovators. And, um, you know, they are not bound uh, by all the knowledge that we have as uh, marketeers um, or you know, like business people, they are not bound by how things have to work or things mm -hmm. are, how processes need to work. And, you know, working with them, it actually opens eyes on how many pre-wired beliefs we have as marketing people mm -hmm. and uh, provide processes and ideas. And we, we think that they're so incredibly unique, but they're absolutely not. And... And another person comes in and they start challenging their the very mm. foundation of your argument, of your understanding how things need to be done. They start asking very basic questions, which have so much sense that you cannot believe that you have never thought about why things have to be done in a certain way and not the other way around. And they start coming up with ideas and they propose solutions that were always on the surface, but you weren't not able to see that because you were too biased all the time. And I find, and I find them very strong at the same time working with the engineering teams because these individuals, they have experience in tight, tight collaboration with engineering teams. They understand all the shortcuts that may be taken. They understand um, um, how to build a skateboard be before building a rocket ship. They understand the trade-offs. They understand technological complexities. They understand what's possible or not. They can have meaningful conversations with uh, the engineering team to propose like how the initiative can be split in smaller beats. So on every level, uh, they would be delivering value to marketing as clients. So I find them very powerful innovators and uh, I found them 
find them absolutely uh, fascinating to work with. They have a challenge though. Uh, the challenge is marketing teams, they can have very strong opinions about how things need to be done. And sometimes they kind of, they transfer biases to the product manager as well. And as a product manager, if you have experience in marketing, if you understand, if you have seen how things work, you are able to push back and uh, offer alternative solutions or maybe help marketing find trade-offs. But if you haven't had experience before, and if you've been mostly working with data, ML and engineering side of things, it's really, really challenging to do so, taking that effectively marketing is your client in the company. And for this reason, I find, well, the solution that I find is fueling marketing expertise into the sports all the time, educating, upskilling them. And when you do this, they just become absolutely brilliant. Very cool. That's super interesting. Can you maybe give us an example? Uh, like, what is the the first uh, project or, or idea that comes to mind when you like walked us through this idea that like um, this product manager shook the foundation of maybe one of your long held marketing beliefs and and you like challenged uh, one of your biases there? Yeah. Um, actually, maybe I will give an example of not the company I was particularly involved with. But uh, the company I truly admire, and this is Duolingo, and I absolutely loved how they approached with data science the very marketing, uh, the very marketing problem. So what happened uh, at one point is that they saw that their daily active user base, uh, daily active user growth, um, starts stagnating, and maybe they saw some diminishing returns or something, but. The reality is that they were making experiments. They were not able to get as much results as they were getting before. So what they did is that they tried to build their uh, growth model. And uh, with the growth model, they split all the audience of users into, into small segments. And they tried to calculate the transition between the segments. So they basically had the new users group, the current users group, the users who are about abdomen, the users who are about churn, and they would calculate transitions between these groups. And after that, they would use historical data to understand the if they make the change in the transition, if they impact the transition or between one group and another, how would it impact the overall daily active user base? And after that, they identified that actually the most value is in keeping existing current users engaged, that acquiring mm-hmm. more new users, or then, you know, resurrecting users who have turned or became dormant. And then they organized the team around uh, the about, around this task, around engaging the current uh, current users. They organize the team, they try to understand, okay, like what levers do we have to uh, keep current users engaged? And they identified a couple of levers, a couple of proxy metrics that should have helped them with that. And they ran experiments around these metrics and they actually were quite successful. And after that, they uh, adopted this approach and the current user retention rate became their new target metric for the business and they grow 
um, daily active users like three times in a couple of years, such mm. like this. So it was incredible. And right now, I really love what they're doing right now. They basically have the pool of notifications that they're sending to users. And it is not a human who decides what to send to a user, but it's mm. a machine that decides what's the best notification to be sent to the user. And I find it very innovative, actually. And however, if maybe just the marketing team would approach this problem, it would be a completely different solution of how you would impact the daily active user space versus how the data science team approached this solution. Yeah, your average marketing team probably would have just like asked for a bigger budget and uh, would have pumped more dollars into top of funnel ads, would have get acquired like more users to to try to like improve that that metric or like I, I think even me uh like putting myself on the spot here like I think my most comfortable like user segment would just be like those like dormant users or users that are about to churn or become dormant. Um, I just feel like there's something natural about trying to like revive uh, that group of people. But yeah, it's easy to forget the people that are already existing and, and active in your product and focusing on how to keep those folks active. So yeah, love that. Love that example. That's a, that's a really good one. Um, I want to uh, ask you about uh, some data topics here. I feel like we could, uh, I was just looking at the time there and I think uh, right, right about like halfway uh, at the halfway point here. So I want to, I want to focus on, on some data pieces. Like we, we talked a bit about this idea that, um, you know, data is the, the, the crux of being able to get anything valuable out of your, your AI tools. Um, especially when it comes to like using AI models on top of domain specific, uh, data models, right? Like, uh, data warehouses are kind of like the central, uh, point of truth for a lot of companies these days but like when you work at a company you realize that like most data warehouses are, are far from being perfect and like uh they i think the expression is like things are less like data lakes and they're more like data swamps a little bit and like data is messy everywhere um i want to talk about this idea of like warehouse native martech apps um i think that the martech industry is moving to this like warehouse native approach because everyone is kind of bought into this idea that the warehouse is the source of truth where instead of making a copy of your data warehouse like most cdps require you today like most marketing automation platforms require you today um, everything would live on top of the data warehouse instead data would be real time and you wouldn't have to like pay to copy your existing database i haven't like come across a ton of these tools yet um some companies solving this on like um, the cloud warehouse for for messaging tool or Vero, Message Gears, Castle.io. chatting with the founder in a couple of weeks. Uh, some companies solving this on product analytics are Rackham, uh, Indicative, and Kubit. But I'm curious, like from what you've seen, um, like uh, advising uh, companies that that are in this space here, and and like what you know about data warehousing and, and that part of the stack. There, like, what does the future hold for marketing technology, and how does it kind of increasingly integrate with uh, the cloud warehouse? I would say. This is a little bit cliche, but there is definitely nothing, you know, one size fits all. And I think, you know, I think we all, we've seen everything, like all possible combinations internally. It really, really, really depends on the, on the company, on the state of their data, on the ownership of their data, on the maturity. It would depend on, uh, 
uh, whether it is a marketing-driven company or the engineering-driven company or the product-driven company, it would have, but more than that, I believe that it would depend on the uh, stage of the company, the decision that they're mm-hmm. making. And just um, to give you um, maybe maybe a couple of examples, we, we chatted before and uh, you mentioned Qubit. Um, and uh, I actually find it um, I actually find it interesting. So if you go to the uh, to the Qubit website, which they position themselves as the analytics tool, so what they are actually saying is that they're like BI solutions like Tableau and uh, and Looker, but they do not require the resources, the uh, data analyst support or BI engineer support that Tableau and Luca would require, and they are very self-serve. So this is wonderful, but this is not something that all companies would want to tolerate because for some parts, you know, <laughs> having control of the data analyst team and BI engineers, this is essential. However, I definitely appreciate that such, such companies as Qubit, they can uh, help democratize, um, um, democratize data analytics solutions for smaller companies that maybe they are not able to buy big sophisticated solutions just right now for many reasons. Maybe they don't have the right resources. Maybe they don't have budgets. Maybe they don't have teams to be able to support it. So the companies would be... um, uh, So I definitely imagine that there is um, a set of companies that, that would be willing to use some composable and some lightweight solutions. Um, but at the same time, um, so there are quite a few companies that position themselves as composable and as lightweight and as, you know, less tools for uh, less functionalities and better functionalities mm-hmm. and less contracts and yada yada, which is all incredible. But at the same time, I'm really wondering how they will react to their customers growing and their the customers' needs growing as well. At one point, their customers, they will start requiring more functionalities and more fu- uh, sophisticated functionalities. And these companies, they will need, and the vendors will need to make a decision when, whether they are accepting and they start developing your functionalities around what they already have to keep the customer. And small companies, they would be, it will be more sensitive for them to lose one of their clients or they will pass on and they will keep true to their values that, you know, they are keeping, uh, their functionality slides. They are keeping their, their, uh, uh, bills lower as well. And so I'm actually very curious to see, you know, where all these smaller vendors start appearing right now, where they will end up. Will they end up being customer data platforms and warehouses and BI uh, mm-hmm. analytics solutions and customer engagement platforms that they are fighting right now? Or, <laughs> or they will keep true to their values and will keep serving uh, a wider range, range of customers. And I actually, you know, if they take the second pass, I actually see that this is very healthy for the industry because Maybe, you know, you won't be able to serve everyone, but at the same time, you're truly democratizing it. So different companies would have 
of different stage, they will have an equal access to data and to quality data. So maybe it will give them a bump and it will increase their chances of survival, which is incredible. Uh, but at the same time, again, um, it will mean that vendors will need to make a decision at one point whether they want to stop development or they continue turning into uh, big platforms that they are challenging right now. Yeah, I think those are really powerful insights there. I, I totally resonate with like the 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 idea that like will will these like players in this like niche composable area that are fighting these like more package solutions end up just like becoming the package solution as they like grow with with their customers needs i think that like so i i've interviewed census on, on the show like they're the reverse etl platform um and i'm also chatting with uh, the founder of high touch next week um they're like maybe the two most prominent reverse etl platforms right now that are pretty big in the composable CDP space fighting this idea of the packaged CDP. But I think they have like two very different stances on, on how they, they see the industry. Um, uh, high touch is a bit more like controversial. Like they're the ones who wrote like the, the CDP is dead or like friends don't let friends buy CDPs type of approach. And I think they've been very um, successful in like generating a lot of buzz and getting people to their site and trying the product. They've grown tremendously and they have some really big clients and on the, on their name and like they're, they're created by like former segment uh, early engineers. Right. So like a smart team and they kind of know what they're doing and, and they're like fighting this battle battle against CDPs. But if you look under the hood on like what they're building, uh, they're already like going outside of just being a reverse ETL platform. Like they've added identity resolution as a feature to their tool. They've added audience segmentation, like their customer studio tool. They've added data governance, like the HIPAA compliance stuff. So like really right now you add like a CDI on top of that, like Snowplow, uh, an ETL tool in a data warehouse and you basically have a packaged CDP solution. But Census is really interesting here because like they have a different philosophy. They aren't necessarily fighting the packaged CDP, like they're proponents of the composable route, but only because it allows for flexibility. And that's like their, their main focus there. And they have customers that use both reverse ETL and a packaged CDP. And they didn't write those articles and then they're not necessarily fighting the packaged CDP. They totally see their role as like just one component within a long list of components that make up the modern data stack. So two big players in that like composability space with different philosophies. But yeah, I I really like what you said about like eventually are they just like those players going to become like the, the bigger package solutions that they're fighting right now. Exactly. And you know, God, I swear this battle between composable and package CDPs and just you know, I remember we had this conversation at Depop and we would, you know, we would discuss it and we would be like, like, what's the future of the data platform? And after that, like you discuss it and it's a heated discussion. But after that, you go ahead and you just clean up UTM tags that they were set up in a, in a poor way and you can't <laughs> track anything right now. And uh, the data is horrible. Or for example, at another company, you would just go ahead and start figuring out why this damn data point is crashing whilst it's responsible for millions of annual revenue. 
and you cannot trace it back to how it was created, by whom it was created, and it's crashing every now and then. Or the discrepancy between iOS and Android, like, you know, the topic of my life where you have two platforms, so you have three platforms, nothing matches anything. And you live in this and you see this very real problems. And after that, you open LinkedIn and post discussed by exactly the same people, like all the time, which I find absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And, uh, you know, if there are conversations about friends, don't lend friends, uh, friends buying uh, a package CDP. And it makes me giggle hysterically because I... <laughs> so, you know, the problem can be on a such a basic level here and without figuring out this data quality, data disparity issues, you wouldn't be able to leverage composable CDP, package CDP, or AI. You wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, so, and for this reason, I actually find the most powerful uh, data instruments right now is uh, some sort of open data hubs that would force ownership uh, by design that would, you know, force documentation by design that uh, would have all the information about data lineage that would uh, have all the information about, um, it would allow people to trace and uh, to be excited about the data, to understand what they can, what they cannot use. And actually, I think like this is the base. This is the most powerful thing that you can do right now is actually get your data to a good state. So after that, you are able to leverage all the composable packaged data platforms that are out there. Because without this base layer, you cannot do anything. Yeah, that's a very experienced uh, perspective for sure. I think it's easy to get caught up on like the buzz and and the hype around like these these tools and and this this architecture, but like really the the, the problem that we're trying to solve is like the messy data and, and the integrity of of the data like you said that that layer and and it can't be solved by adding a reverse ETL platform or like new technologies on top, right? Like it requires a fundamental change in the operational approach of your marketing team and your data team. And it's like way more complicated than, than adding an extra tool to this stack. 100%. And please, please, please don't add additional tools on the mess because <laughs> it's like spaghetti, it's multiplied in size and it's like, it's total madness. I love it. I feel like we could keep jamming on this uh, for quite a bit of time, but I, I know that like you, you spend a bit of time outside of these like the debates on on data and uh, and AI and 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 give back to um, the community uh, with your your entrepreneurial spirit. You uh, with a team of volunteers right now uh, built a successful nonprofit, having powerful impacts uh, already on the lives of a bunch of children in Ukraine. Um, I'd love to like pick your brain on this. Like, how did the idea for Lulaka come about, and what were the initial challenges that that you faced when you established uh, the nonprofit? And and maybe you can share some of the more uh, memorable and impactful uh, artwork pieces that that you received, and and why they've uh, stuck with you from some of the children. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for asking. This project means so much. Um, so we started working on it last year. Uh, 
a couple of months after the war had started. And we really wanted to support our children specifically because it definitely felt like um, children are the most insecure group. Um, and, you know, we as adults, we have an ability to volunteer, donate, uh, uh, read news and reflect and understand what's happening, analyze what's going on around us. For children, it's just their world breaking around them completely. Uh, and many children, they've left their house, their homes and, um, uh, their, uh, they are refugees right now. Many children are still in Ukraine and they see and they see and they hear bombs. Um, I really feel for all children that are in Ukraine right now or they are outside of Ukraine and we're forced to flee. Um, and so, and we decided to build this project just to give them some, um, maybe a little bit of hope a little bit of the idea that the world sees them, uh, the world is not mm -hmm. ignorant. Uh, and basically, like what children can do on Medeka, they are sending us uh, their artworks and we publish their artworks and every person in the world, any person in the world can buy their artworks for seven pounds. Uh, and we, the children, uh, they made uh, 30,000 K uh, in sales, which we are incredibly proud of. Um, mm -hmm. and we've got lots of coverage, uh, and lots of support from great media such as, uh, BBC, uh, and the independent and voice of America, um, which we are very, very grateful for. Um, and it definitely, you know, sometimes it feels that we're doing it for, um, our, um, myself personally, it feels that. I can be doing it for my personal egoistic reasons, uh, because, um, this is my way to reflect and feel a little bit better with all the, uh, mm. with the war that is happening in Ukraine. And this mm -hmm. is very close to my home and, uh, my country is also involved. And this is the way just not to get mad and not to fall into despair and depression. Um, after which you wouldn't be able to recover. So this is my way to just, you know, uh, do something and reflect through action and maybe, uh, feel just a little bit better. Very cool. I think that's a very powerful outlet for, uh, I think it's, it's anything but egotistical right now. Like it's the most selfless way of, of putting that, that outlet in, in that creative energy. Um, I think what you guys have built is, uh, very, very powerful. And, um, yeah, I, uh, definitely pride, uh, pride pride the team on on what you guys have built and uh yeah 30k for children uh, i'm sure it goes a, a long way like i i was on the site and uh, read some of the the success stories there from some of the children so yeah congrats on on what you've built and uh, excited to follow along and and see uh the the continued success there thanks so much well hopefully it will be happening and uh, we get lots of support and the and the children are incredible so there is there is only onwards, but the main thing is the war should be over as soon as possible. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
this has been a super fun conversation, Alexandra. I really appreciate your time. Uh, everyone that comes on the Humans of Martech, we ask the same question uh, at the end of the show. Um, you're an activist, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a writer, a speaker, your wife. You have a lot going on right now. And one question we ask all of our guests, like I said, is how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all of the things that you're working on while staying happy? Well, I think I try to give back as much as possible. And this feeling of giving back, it's definitely brings this, you know, very genuine uh, happiness to you because it's not something like you are personally benefit, benefiting from, but, you know, giving back through sharing knowledge, through publishing on LinkedIn, through doing such initiatives such as uh, Lineka, um, doing uh, free uh, mentorship sessions with folks uh, who want to advance in uh, their careers but not sure how. Um, and, you know, like this giving back, like with every conversation, with every knowledge sharing, with, with the, every sale on Lineka, you definitely feel better and a little bit more happier. So giving back is a very powerful way to stay happy. Very cool. Love that answer, Alexandra. Uh, anything else you want to plug to the audience uh, before we go? I'll, I'll share out links to uh, like a site as well as your your personal site and uh, and LinkedIn. But anything else you want to plug before we go? Um, maybe thank you so much for doing that. I definitely believe that Wartag is one of the um, young spaces and not fully explored spaces. And I definitely believe that we, we need more people, more marketing people excited about the marketing technology and getting into this space and driving innovational initiatives and strategies. Um, and I definitely believe that Humans of Martech is helping them in it a lot. Awesome. Truly appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, thanks for those comments. <laughs>